Well, good morning. Uh, I love hearing stories about God at work in people's lives and throughout the world as his people pray. In her latest uh, prayer letter, our friend Jay in the Middle East tells us she heard some amazing stories of God at work in the mess and damage uh, in her city from the earthquakes that happened in nearby countries. And then on top of that, flood damage that happened for people in her city. One young girl was rescued after being trapped under rubble for several days. And when her rescuers came to bring her food, she said, I'm not hungry. Every hour a light came and fed me. I have no doubt that miracles like that are God at work through the prayers of his people, including us here at St John's over recent months, for God to have mercy and to rescue people who've been suffering from those earthquakes. I think my best ever answer to prayer in my own life was for my mum. Uh, she died about 19 years ago and she had cancer for many years before she died. And I was praying and praying that God would save her. She wasn't a Christian. And just seven weeks before she died, God had mercy and he brought her to know him. And what was especially wonderful, what is especially wonderful as I think about that, is that so many people joined me in praying for her. At the time, I was working half my week at the Christian group at Credo at UTS and half my week on the staff at St. Barnabas Broadway. And so many students in my Bible study groups over the years prayed for her. And the staff and my friends and members at St. Barnabas prayed for her. What a wonderful thing it is when we see God answer prayer and change lives as we pray. These, these prayers are prayers for justice and mercy. They're your kingdom come prayers. Your will be done. They're prayers for hope and healing, for salvation and rescue. And for the last 20 years or more of my walk as a Christian, God has been using stories like these and especially his word and his spirit and his people uh, to inspire me to want to be a warrior in prayer. But I have to tell you, I'm a long, long way from being a warrior in prayer. As Mark mentioned in the beginning of the service, there are joys in prayer and there are times of great struggle and challenge. Uh, I find it hard to know how to pray faithfully for just so many needs and so many people. I find it hard uh, to pray in any kind of sustained and ongoing way for the concerns that are really God's heart and his priorities, and not just, and, and they're valid, my own prayers for myself, but not just my prayers for myself. And what about you, brothers and sisters? How do you keep persevering in prayer, especially for those things that you uh, may have been asking God for for years, or perhaps even decades, and he doesn't seem to be answering. He doesn't seem to be doing anything. And maybe even you think, He's forgotten me. It can be hard, can't it, to keep going in faithful, passionate, persevering prayer. And today we're looking at this passage that Jesus, uh, this parable that Jesus told his disciples, the passage that Dimitri read for us. Uh, it's not in any other of the three Gospels. Only Luke records this parable that Jesus told. 
And Luke makes it very, very clear in the first verse of our passage why Jesus told this parable. He says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. As always, when we read the Bible, what comes before and after our passage is really important if we want to understand the message of our passage. And at the end of chapter 17, Jesus has been telling his disciples about being ready for his return. He says that life will just be going on as usual. People will be eating and buying and working. We'll be going about our day-to-day lives and without warning, Jesus will return in all his glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus wants us to be ready for that day when he comes back. And so he tells us how we'll know we're ready. We'll be always praying and not giving up, he says. And to reinforce his message, he tells us this parable about the judge and the widow. And at one level, it's a very simple story. Yet it's set in a cultural context that is just worlds apart from the one we're familiar with. And so as we look at the characters in this story, the judge and the widow, we're going to try and understand them in their first century Middle Eastern setting so that we can even better grasp grasp what Jesus wants to say uh, to us through this parable. So let's meet the judge. We meet him in verse 2. In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. This is an important man. He has status in his society. He has an important role in judging people's cases in court. And he would have known from his Old Testament scriptures that the fear of the Lord was to be his foundation for just and fair judgment between people who brought their appeal before him in his court. But not this judge. He does not fear God. And not only that, but this judge doesn't care what people think. Literally, the the verse says, before people, he was never ashamed. And to grasp the significance of this, we need to understand that in the Middle Eastern culture that Jesus' story takes place in, it's in, and still is today, in large part an honour-shame culture. And in honour-shame cultures, social behaviour is not driven by an individualistic sense of right and wrong, but by what brings honour to the community and the family. And I'm sure that our Indigenous brothers and sisters get this more than us, so we can ask them about that. So rather than saying to your child in this Middle Eastern culture, that's wrong, Cyril, you might say, you would say, that's shameful, Cyril. And so you appeal to your child on the basis of evoking feelings of shame or feelings of pride and the honour and reputation of the whole family and the whole extended community um, is what drives and motivates Cyril's behaviour. So back to our judge. People can't appeal to him saying, please do this for my sake, because he doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. He has no sense of inner honour to which people can appeal. And nor, as we've seen, can anyone get through to him by saying, for God's sake, because he doesn't fear God. And in the Middle East, those two approaches, a fear of God and a sense of honour, 
were the standard way to appeal to someone for help. But with this judge, neither will succeed. He won't do the right thing, he won't do the honourable thing. So can you see that before we even meet the widow, Jesus is making it clear to us that her situation appears completely and utterly hopeless. So let's meet her in verse 3. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. In the Old Testament, I'm sure you know, the widow is the classic symbol of the most powerless, the most helpless, the most vulnerable in society. She, she's maybe a young widow or maybe elderly, we don't know, but either way, she has no male relative to look after her. And of course, she has no social housing, no Centrelink, no legal aid, not even ones that don't work very well back in that culture. In, and in Middle Eastern society, women don't go to the courts. If a woman has a case to plead, a man goes for her. So Jesus wants us to see that this widow has no husband, no father, no uncle, no brother, no son, no nephew to speak for her. When she goes to the court to plead her case, she is completely and utterly alone. What a massive contrast to the judge Jesus is painting. She has no status, no importance, no honour, no hope, it seems. She is desperately in need. Grant me justice against my adversary. Who is this adversary? Well, we're not really told, but the fact that there's just one judge seems to indicate that her case has something to do with money. So she's probably owed a debt or part of the inheritance um, is being withheld from her. And so here she is asking God for what he says all through the Old Testament. She is, is just her right as someone invulnerable in society, justice and protection. And so here's the scene, I want you to imagine it. A large open hall, the court of justice of this town. The judge settles himself on his slightly raised dais and all around him, clamour men waiting for their cases to be heard, saying, my case should be heard first. And some very fortunate men have enough money to negotiate in whispered voices with the various secretaries who are squatting around the judge and to hand over a fee, better known as a bribe. When the greed of one or other of these secretaries is satisfied, he whispers to the judge and that man's case is heard. And up the back, at the very back of the crowd, the widow, shouting to be heard above the noise, grant me justice against my adversary. Grant me justice. You'd better grant me justice or else. All day this goes on and the next day and the next and the next. He keeps refusing. She is sternly bidden to be silent. She's reproachfully told that she keeps coming every day. And so I will, she says, till the judge hears me. What I've just done is adapted to our parable what is a true account that's told in many commentaries on this passage, an account of a court scene in 19th century Iraq. And the commentators all note that this 19th century scene provides really important detail, uh, background details to our parable. And here's how the account from the 
19th century Iraqi court scene ends. Quote, at length the judge impatiently demanded, what does that woman want? Her story was told. Her only son had been taken for a soldier and she was alone and could not till her piece of ground. Yet the tax gatherer had forced her to pay the impost from which as a lone widow she could be exempt. The judge asked a few questions and then said, let her be exempt. Thus her perseverance was rewarded. Had she had money to fee a clerk, she might have been excused long before. End of quote. In the same way, in our parable, it is the persistent, unrelenting coming and crying out of the widow that causes the judge to eventually give her what she is asking for. Look. You can see I'm new at this. And so we see in verses 4 and 5, For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. You see, he still has no fear of God. He still doesn't care what people think. His internal monologue that we see in these verses remind us of that. But So it's not on the basis of doing what is right or what is honourable that he acts for her. So why does he give her justice in the end? Well, the words come and attack me there in verse 5 are a prize-fighting term for a blow under the eye. But he's not scared of physical violence. This isn't about physical violence because if this widow were to be physically violent with him, she would just be thrown out of the court. Um, interestingly though, very interestingly, culturally, she can shout at him, she can even insult him, and she would not be thrown out, something that a man couldn't do. The Iraqi, another story parallel to the Iraqi one, uh, true story says that um, someone saw a man shot for doing that in a court. So why does he grant her justice in the end? Well, he is convinced that she is never, ever going to give up. She's going to keep on and on coming to his court, shouting from the back, pleading her case. She's going to give me a heart attack, we might say, today. Her persistence has got to him so much that she sees that he gets justice. And here's what Jesus concludes. Verses 6 to 8. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus is making his point using a way of saying things that was very common for teachers in his day. An argument if you like, from the light. And there is, there is quite a bit of humour in this parable, even though I haven't brought it out. It's probably one of Jesus' most humorous because they're such extreme characters and his judge is so unjust. It's a little bit humorous. Uh, we might not see it. But it's an argument from the light to the heavy. How much more argument? So Jesus is saying, if such persistence pays off for this widow who's asking a harsh, unjust, Judge, how much more is persistence appropriate for us in prayer because we kneel 
before a compassionate God, our loving Father. Jesus wants us to know that we are not in the presence of a harsh judge who wants nothing to do with us. It's the opposite. When we pray, we come before our Father in heaven who cares deeply for his children, who listens to us. We are in the presence of our God who loves justice and mercy, who does justice and mercy, and who has guaranteed in raising his son Jesus from the dead that he will most certainly bring about full and perfect justice for his people when Jesus returns. That very, just one word can stump us in this parable quickly in verse 8. It so often doesn't seem quickly to us that God brings justice. But in God's view of time, Jesus is saying, in the light of an eternity that we look forward to with no injustice, no tears, no poverty, no desperation, our lives are but a moment. And so we need to be patient and persevering and like this widow, Keep crying out to our Heavenly Father and keep on and not give up. And Jesus finishes his parable with a very confronting question, I think. You see the last couple of lines there. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? One day when we least expect it, when we're just going about our everyday lives, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be in a thousand years, we don't know, but Jesus will come back. Will I be ready? Will you be ready? How will we know we're ready? Well, Jesus says we'll be ready if he finds faith on the earth. And how will he find faith on the earth? He will see women and men who are praying persistently and not giving up. And what in particular will they be praying about? We will be crying out day and night for justice and for mercy. Just a little further on from our passage, again the context in Luke 18.31, Jesus takes his disciples aside and he tells them that they're all going up to Jerusalem and that there the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He says they will mock him and insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him and on the third day he will rise again. And so after Jesus' death, what happens to his disciples? They too were mocked and insulted and spat upon. And it's no surprise that Jesus is telling this parable just before they start to head for Jerusalem because he wants them to be like the widow in the midst of the injustice he knows they're going to face. As they live for him and his glory, he wants them to keep praying and in particular for justice and to not give up till they see an answer. Did justice come in their lifetime? No. Many of Jesus' early disciples were flogged and killed just as he was. And today, hundreds and millions of Christians around the world are persecuted in one form or another because they follow Jesus. They're everything from being deprived of, of food and health care to rejected by their families to imprisoned and some even dying. 
A couple of weeks ago, I contacted our friend Jay in the Middle East and asked her what injustice is like for people in her location. A couple of stories. Her cleaner, Ayat, is from a Muslim family. Her husband doesn't get paid much for his work, which is the case for many people. They're paid unfairly, but they can't do anything about it because of corruption at a government level and because there are no unions to appeal to. So their 12-year-old son had to stop school and get a job as an apprentice mechanic to help the family income. And he was on his way home from uh, work one day and he got beaten up by youths and he had to go to hospital. But they didn't go to the police. You can't do that because there's corruption at a police level and they would be asked to pay a bribe. The whole community knew about this, but no one said anything because it would cause even more trouble. Many of the women Jay meets with are believers from a Muslim background. If a woman becomes a follower of Jesus and decides to remove her hijab, uh, then there are very often threats from the extended family and the community. So most continue to dress modestly, but then what happens? Christians in church from a Christian background don't recognise them as true believers because the hijab is a symbol of religion and so they're not able to receive aid because the church has limited aid and they have to decide somehow who they give it to. So injustice comes at, the, at these Muslim background believers from both sides, from their original community, from their new Christian community. How does this impact prayer, I asked Jane. And here's what she said in her WhatsApp message to me. Our team works closely with the refugee population they don't have material things. They recognise that they are in a desperate position and in relation to injustices, there's nothing they can do. They can't appeal to the government or the police or to workers' rights or some kind of anti-discrimination board. Really, all they can do is pray. And so when we meet with people, we, they ask us, please pray. We really need your prayers. Even though my Arabic is very basic at the moment, I try to pray a few things in Arabic, but then I say, I want to pray more for you, so I pray in English. They can't understand, but they know that God hears whatever language. It means a lot to them because they know that prayer is really the only answer. God is the only one who can help them in their situation. That's a contrast to the middle-class Christian background people who are here, who are comfortable. I'm thinking too of my own experience in Australia. You know, we go through troubles and a reminder we should pray, but sometimes life seems fine. We're at a Bible study and we get to the end and say, we should pray. That doesn't happen with my friends here who are very much facing injustice. Prayer's not an afterthought. Oh, we haven't prayed, so we should. It's, we are desperate. We desperately need God's help. We must pray. It's the one thing we must do. Friends, I think this is so relevant to us because some of the injustices faced by the first disciples and by followers of Jesus all around the world are increasingly likely to become our reality in Australia. In some places they already are. There's a, just a massive cultural shift taking place in our society as it cuts itself off more and more from our, the Judeo-Christian heritage. So should we expect greater justice for, and greater fairness for Christians? 
Or should we be prepared for injustice and even more discrimination than we're already starting to see? Perhaps even persecution in years to come. And there are many injustices and discriminations that some of you in our church here and in our wider church family and our community around us face regularly. Those for whom our Centrelink and housing and other systems don't work as they should. Our First Nations brothers and sisters. I read in the paper yesterday, domestic and family violence is again massively on the increase. Some may be facing that. And those people know that they are already, they already know themselves to be like, more like this widow. Jesus wants all of us to be like this widow and like Jane's friends in the Middle East, to know that apart from God, we have nothing. He is the provider of all things. He is the one who can bring change in the most desperate situations. He is the only one who can bring true and lasting justice. So in essence, the message of our passage today is this. Prayer is the most profound expression of our dependence on God, of faith. So if we're not praying, we're not trusting. And if we're not trusting, we're not ready for Jesus' return. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't tell this passage to make us feel guilty. Because he knows we have a loving Father who's always there, ready, when we turn around to pray, to listen to us. What's been surprising to me, I chose this passage because I've loved it for a long time and it's inspired me to pray for a long time. Prayer as an expression of faith. But it's only when I've studied for this sermon that I've realised that the context is so much about praying for justice in particular. And so I have a renewed sense of Jesus' call to pray for justice and there is no shortage of things to pray for, are there? Even so many in our midst, so many things in our midst we can pray, be praying for in our country um, and throughout the world. Last night, for example, I turned on the TV to watch the last episode of a streaming thing that I've been watching, but on the screen, on the, I can't remember which channel, came something about scammers and I thought, my initial thought was, I, I hate scammers. Have you been getting those text messages? Dad, I got a dad one yesterday. Dear Dad, something about my phone. I just delete it and I feel grumpy. But this TV show was about how scammers, Chinese scammers in Cambodia are being abused and locked up for months and months. And I thought, I could pray about that injustice instead of just getting grumpy when I get a scam text message. There is so much we can be praying for. And I am so thankful that prayer is not just an individual thing. In fact, it's especially a church, a corporate thing. We need each other in this journey. I'm so glad we have wonderful prayers up the front every week. We have our Bible study groups that we can pray in and communion prayer available. Let's make the most of those opportunities. We can even pause after church for a moment when we're talking with someone over coffee and pray about that thing for each other. Brothers and sisters, as we head towards Easter, our remembrance of Jesus' death and our celebration of his resurrection, which guarantees absolutely that God will bring justice. 
What a great season to renew our will to pray. To be asking God, teach us to pray, Lord. To renew our commitment to pour out our hearts to our loving, listening, Heavenly Father in passionate and persistent and not giving up prayer for justice and mercy in particular. And if we're not sure where to start or we've stalled, there are so many wonderful parts of scripture that we can go to. So I just want to finish by praying those verses that Susie read for us from Psalm 86. The whole psalm is wonderful, by the way. If you have a chance later today, read the whole psalm. That's a great thing to do. Let me pray these verses as we finish. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God, have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Amen.